Section 60 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Randall. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha Von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 14, Part 5. Meanwhile, Dr. Bressa had arrived. He himself brought the medicines which we had telegraphed for. I could have kissed his hands as he walked into the midst of us to devote his self-sacrificing services to his old friends. He at once took on himself the command of the establishment. He had the two corpses carried into a remote chamber, barred up the rooms in which the poor things had died, and made us all submit to a powerful disinfecting process. An intense carbolic odor now penetrated all the rooms, and to this day, whenever this smell meets me, those dreadful days of cholera rise before my imagination. The intended flight had to be postponed a second time. On the very day of Lily's death, the carriage was standing ready which was to convey away Aunt Mary, Rosa, Otto, and my little boy, when the coachman, seized by the invisible destroyer, was forced to get off the coach box again. Then I will drive you, said my father, when the news was brought to him. Quick, is everything ready? Rosa came out. Drive on, she said, but I must stop behind. I am going Lily's way. And she spoke truth. The break of day dawned on this second young bride, too, in the chamber of death. Of course, in the horror of this new calamity, the departure of the others was not carried out. In the midst of my anguish, of my raging fear, the deepest scorn again seized me for that gigantic folly which had voluntarily called forth so great a calamity. My father, when Rose's corpse had been carried out, had sunk on his knees with his head against the wall. I went to him and took him by the arm. Father, I said, this is war. No answer. Father, do you hear? Now or never will you now curse war? He, however, collected himself. You remind me of it. This misfortune shall be borne with a soldier's courage. It is not I alone. The whole country has to offer its sacrifice of blood and tears. What comfort then has come to the country from the sufferings of you and your brethren? What comfort from the lost battles? What from these two girls' lives cut short? Father, oh, do me this kindness for the love of me. Curse war. See here. I drew him to a window, and just then a black coffin was being brought on a car into the courtyard. See here? That is for our Lily, and tomorrow another such for our Rosa, and the day after, perhaps a third. And why? Why? because God has willed it so, my child. God, always God, all that, however, is folly, all savagery, all the arbitrary action of men hiding itself under the shield of God's will. Do not blaspheme, Martha. Do not blaspheme now when God's chastening hand is so visibly. A footman came into the room. Your Excellency, the carpenter will not carry the coffin into the chamber where the countesses are lying and no one will venture into it. Not you either, coward? 
I could not alone. Then I will help you. I will myself see to my daughters. And he strode to the door. Back, he cried to me as I was following him. You must not go with me. You must not die as well as me. Think of your child. What could I do? I hesitated. That is the most torturing thing in such circumstances, not to know at all where one's duty lies. If one pays to the sick and the dead the loving service which one's heart yearns to do, then one spreads the germs of the evil wider again and brings danger on the others who have as yet been spared. One would be willing to sacrifice oneself, but one knows that in risking this one, risk sacrificing others also. In such a dilemma, there is only one helpful way to give up life, not one's own merely, but also that of all one's dear ones, to assume that all is done with and for each one to stand by the other in his hours of suffering, as long as they last. Looking backward, looking forward, all that must cease. Together, on the deck of a sinking ship, no means of escape. Let us hold each other in our arms, close, close as possible to the last moment, in a due fair world. The resignation had come over us all. The plan of flight had been given up. Everyone went to the bed of every patient and of everyone who had died. Even Bressa no longer tried to keep us from this, the only humane way of acting. His neighborhood, his energetic, unresting rule gave us a certain feeling of security. Our sinking ship was at least not without a captain. Oh, that cholera week in Grummet. Over twenty years have passed since then, but I still feel a shudder through my bones and marrow when I think of it. Tears, wailing, heart-rending death things, the smell of carbolic acid, the cracking of the bones of those seized with cramp, the disgusting symptoms, the incessant tolling of the death bell, the interment, no, the huddling away of the dead, for in such cases there is no funeral pump, all the order of life given up, no meal times, the cook was dead, no going to sleep at night, here and there a morsel snatched standing and a doze as one sat in one's chair in the morning hours. Outside, as though from the irony of indifferent nature, the most splendid summer weather, the joyous song of the blackbird, the luxuriant colors of the flower beds, in the village, death without cessation. All the Prussians who were left behind were dead. I met the man who buries the dead today, said Francis, our valet de chambre as he was coming back from the churchyard with his empty carriage. One or two more taken there? I asked. Oh, yes, six or seven, about half a dozen every day, sometimes even more. And it does happen sometimes that one or other gives a grunt or so inside the hearse there. But that makes no matter. In he goes into the trench, the duh. <sighs> Prussian. Next day, the monster died himself and another man had to take up his office, at that time the most laborious in the place. The post brought nothing but sorrow, news from all quarters of the ravages of the pest, and love letters, letters to remain forever unanswered, from Prince Henry 
who knew nothing of what was going on. To Conrad, I had sent a single line to prepare him for the awful event. Lily, very ill. He could not come immediately. The service detained him. It was not till the fourth day that the poor fellow rushed into the house. Lily, he cried, is it true? He had heard of the misfortune as he was on the way. We said yes. He remained unnaturally still and tearless. I have loved her many years, was all he said, low to himself. Then aloud, where is she lying? In the churchyard? Goodbye. She is waiting for me. Shall I come with you? Someone offered. No, I prefer going alone. He went, and we saw him no more. On the grave of his sweetheart, he put a bullet through his brains. So ended Conrad Count Althaus, captain lieutenant in the 4th Regiment of Hussars, in his 27th year. At another time, the tragic nature of this event would have produced a very shocking effect. But now, how many young officers had not the war carried off immediately? This one only indirectly. And at the moment when we heard of his deed, a new misfortune had occurred in our midst, which called for all the anguish of our hearts. Otto, my poor father's adored and only son, was seized by the destroying angel. His sufferings lasted the whole night and the next day, with alternations of hope and despair. About 7 p.m., all was over. My father threw himself on the corpse with such a thrilling shriek that it peeled through the whole house. We could hardly tear him from the dead body. And oh, the cries of agony that now ensued. For hours and hours long, the old man poured out howling, roaring, rattling, shrieks of desperation. His son, his pride, his auto, his all. To this outburst succeeded on a sudden, a stiff, dumb apathy. He had not had the strength to attend the burial of his darling. He lay on a sofa, motionless, and it almost seemed unconscious. Bressa ordered him to be undressed and put to bed. After an hour, he seemed to awake. Aunt Mary, Frederick, and I were at his side. For a time, he looked about him with a questioning look and then sat up and tried to speak. He could not, however, pronounce a word and was struggling for breath with a puzzled face of anguish. Then he began to shake and to throw himself about as if he were attacked by those terrible cramps which are the last symptoms of the cholera, though he had not shown any of the other symptoms of it. At last, he got out one word, Martha. I fell on my knees at his bedside. Father, my poor dear father. He held his hands over my head. Your wish, said he with difficulty, may be fulfilled. I curse, I cur. He could get no further and sank back on his pillow. In the meantime, Bresser had come in and, in answer to our anxious questions, gave us his opinion that a spasm of the heart had caused my father's death. The most terrible thing, said Aunt Mary, after we had buried him, is that he departed with a curse on his lips. Don't trouble about that, Aunt, I said to console her. If that curse fell from the lips of everybody, 
Yes, of everybody. It would be a great blessing to humanity. Such was the cholera week at Grommets. In the space of seven days, nine inhabitants of the chateau had been snatched away. My father, Lily, Rosa, Otto, my maid, Nettie, the cook, the coachman, and two grooms. In the village during the same time, over 80 persons died. Stated in this dry way, all this sounds like a noteworthy statistical fact, or if it stands recorded in the tale book, like an extravagant play of the author's fancy. But it is neither so dry as the one, nor so romantically terrible as the other. It is a cold, intelligible fact, full of sadness. It was not Grummet's alone in our neighborhood that was so hardly hit. Whoever chooses to search the annals of the neighboring villages and chateaux may find there plenty of similar cases of enormous calamity. For example, there is Schloss Stockern in the vicinity of the little town of Horn, of the family which inhabited it during the time from the 9th to the 13th of August, 1866, and also after the departure of the Prussian troops courted there, four members of the family, Rudolf, aged 20, his sisters Emily and Bertha, and his uncle Candid, and besides them, five of the servants succumbed to the plague. The youngest daughter, Pauline von Ingelschofen, was spared. She afterwards married a Baron Sutner, and she, even now, still tells with a shudder the tale of the cholera week at Stockton. At that time, such a resignation to woe and death had come over me that I was in daily expectation that death, whose characters had been stamped on the land for the last two months, would carry off myself and my loved ones, my Frederick, my Rudolph. I actually wept for them in anticipation. And yet, along with all this, and in the midst of my trouble, I still had sweet moments. Such were when leaning on my husband's breast and encircled by his loving arms. I could pour my tears out on his faithful heart. How gently then would he speak words to me, not a consolation, but a fellow feeling and love, so that my own heart warmed and expanded to them. No, the world is not so bad. I was compelled against my will to think. The world is not all lamentation and cruelty. Compassion and love are alive in it, at present, it is true, only in individual souls, not as an all-pervading law and a prevailing normal condition. Still, they are present. And just as these feelings glow in us twain, sweetening by means of their gentle contact, even this time of suffering, just as they dwell in many other, nay, in most other souls, so they will one day come to an outbreak and will dominate the general relations of the human family. The future belongs to goodness. End of section 60